And welcome back to Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. I am Justin. And I'm Josh. So today, we are going to spend some time talking about the Stanley Cup. The greatest trophy in the history of sports. The greatest trophy, that's right. We're going to give you just a ton of information about it. But before we do that, what what have we just nerded out on? Yeah. So, in context with the Stanley Cup, I think we both talked about this, Blues Clips. I have been watching a ton of Blues stuff lately. It's been kind of ridiculous for me as far as, I mean, every night. I just yeah. pull up different clips of celebrations and parades mm-hmm. and clips from games who knows yeah i was at game seven and round two so i didn't get to watch it on tv so i've really been watching like that goal over and over and over again wait wait so you were at the game and you're saying you didn't get to watch it on tv but you got to watch it in person yes and it was much better in person yeah that's, i like that's to relive kind of, it though that's why you, know? you go to the game yes <laughs> so all right well so what we just nerded out on let me go first besides all the clips um i've been watching this show called weeds have you seen it? I have not. I've heard it's like a Breaking Bad semi, but kind of funny. It's on Netflix, I know. It's on my list. Yeah, it's pretty so. great. So it's basically about a mom who lives in the suburbs, and she her husband dies, and she basically starts dealing marijuana and kind of gets the family and the neighborhood, and really not the family, but the neighborhood, is already involved with this, and so she kind of becomes like this kingpin sort of of suburbia. So like Breaking Bad. Kind of like Breaking Bad. Not quite as serious. There's, there's a lot of comedy, and you're right, it's definitely a comedy. Only half-hour episodes, too, correct? Right. Yeah. So it goes pretty quick, and I don't want to tell you how quickly my wife and I made our way through this show. It's pretty ridiculous. So it came out on August 7th, 2005 on Showtime. It is currently on Netflix. The final episode um, aired September 16th, 2012, and it was actually created by the same person, Genji Kohan, who created Orange is the New Black. Have you watched that one? I watched the first season with my wife, then I kind of got lame. To me, I was not a fan. That doesn't seem like your type of show. Yeah. So, I don't, I don't even know why I say that. It it's just seem not like it. my style. Yep. Yeah. So, real quick, it stars uh, Mary Louise Parker as Nancy Botwin. Basically, there are a whole bunch of Botwins. Hunter Parrish as Silas. Alexander Gould as Shane. Kevin Nealon, who is probably my favorite character, as Doug Wilson. Justin Kirk as, again, another Botwin. And it even has... Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who is Judah, who's the deceased husband. He's only in like one or two episodes. Interesting. I am a huge fan of his. Yeah, he's fan- fan. He's fantastic. So this show's great. It's, it is pretty funny. It is Breaking Bad-esque, but it's not quite as serious. And yeah, I'd recommend it. Cool. Yes, for me, I have been in Outlander. Have you watched Outlander? I haven't. I, it's one of my shows I, I would like to watch. I know you're a history person. so It's on Netflix now. So that was, was it what excited me. The first two seasons... Outlander is about an English combat nurse. She's a combat nurse in World War II. She comes back from 1945, and she's back in Scotland in 1743. So it's kind of funny to see her, like, she's this powerful, strong woman, and she goes back in time, and they're like, why are you talking back to me, woman? Like, what's going on? (laughs) Is it a comedy? No, it's not a comedy. There's some funny moments because of that. Okay. And since she's a nurse, she's able to go back and help heal them with stuff that they don't even know about. Hmm. So the show debuted in 2014. It's in season five, like real time. I'm only in season one. It's based on a series of novels by Diana Gabaldon. It stars Catriona Balfe as Claire Randall, Sam Hugan as Jamie Frazier, Duncan LaCroix as Murtaugh Frazier, and Tobias Menzies, who plays Edmure Tolley in Game of Thrones as Frank Randall. 
Those are some pretty fun names that you just read. Yeah, I do my best. <laughs> you know, it's uh, word to the warning, word of warning. It's kind of hard to understand when they get the Scottish accents going. Yeah. Sometimes you may have to turn on subtitles. I don't. I kind of have a talent for that, but yeah. So it's a good show. Highly recommend it. Cool. I'll have to check it out sometime. All right. So without further ado, let's go full nerd on the Stanley Cup. Let's get into it. You know, this is the greatest trophy of all time. I'm so excited to talk about it today. Well, we're going to tell you a bunch of information, and then maybe you can tell us if you think it is, in fact, the greatest trophy of all time. So the history of the Cup, French term is La, I can't speak French, but La Coupe Stanley. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's the championship trophy that is awarded to the NHL playoff winner. And it's actually the oldest existing trophy to be awarded to a professional sports franchise. And the International Ice Hockey Federation, which is also called the IIHF, considers it to be considers it to be one of the most important championships available to the sport. And if you don't know what the IIHF is, their job is to basically govern, develop, and organize hockey throughout the world, as well as promote friendly relations among the member the member national associations. Yeah, and it's also looking at promoting young players' development and game officials. And it's responsible for processing the international players' transfers. So, for example, Vladimir Tarasenko is a big Blues player. He wouldn't be here without them. Right. So He's playing overseas in the, in the Russian League. Yes, the KHL. KHL, that's right. Good job. <laughs> I don't like to brag too much, but yes. Very impressed. Um, so there is a lot of information about this trophy. We'll try and get through it relatively quickly. That probably won't happen, though. This is full nerd. Yes, and we're going to be fully nerding out on this one. So the trophy was commissioned in 1892 by what at the time was called the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. And it's actually named after Lord Stanley of Preston, who was the governor general of Canada. And he donated it to award uh, Canada's top-ranking amateur ice hockey club. And this guy, Frederick Arthur Stanley, who again, Lord Stanley of Preston, he was a member of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, and he served as the sixth Governor General of Canada from 1888 to 1893. Yeah, he also dedicated Stanley Park, which is in Vancouver, British Columbia. You ever been there? I actually just went there this last summer. Nice. I've heard it's beautiful. I've never been. It's really cool. It's, it takes a while to get to because it's kind of like at the very end of, of the city, and it connects basically you've got, you've got Vancouver – and then you've got British Columbia, I believe. There's like a giant body of water there, and the Stanley Park is kind of like on the corner. It's, it's, it is gorgeous. Hmm. He was first exposed to the game at Montreal's 1889 Winter Carnival. This is where he saw the Montreal Victorious play the Montreal Hockey Club. Yeah, and really there was no organized hockey except in Montreal and Ottawa. So it was really – ice hockey was really in its infancy in Canada. Not the sport, but just organized professional leagues – and he got really involved with it because his two sons, Arthur and Algernon, which is a fun fun name, mm-hmm. they formed a new team called the Ottawa Redou Hall Rebels. Yeah, and Arthur also played a key role in the formation of what became known as the Ontario Hockey Association, and he also founded ice hockey in Great Britain. Yeah. And Ar- oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Arthur and Algernon persuaded their father to donate a trophy to be an outward and visible sign of the hockey championship. Yeah, and even though he donated this trophy, he actually never saw a Stanley Cup championship game, and he also never presented the cup because his term as governor general ended in September 1893, and he was shipped back to England. 
on July 15th. That's kind of depressing and sad that you don't even get to see your own cup I know. given to somebody. But there is a silver lining. He was inducted to the Canadian Hockey Hall of Fame because of this recognition in 1945 in the Honored Builders category. And the cup was equal to 10.5 pounds sterling, which then was $48.67 in U.S. money, which in 2019, it is equal to $1,357 in, or in 2019. Yeah. So it's it's definitely uh, increased in, in value over the course of however many years, right? I would think it'd be a little a little more than that just in general today as well. Well, as we'll learn in a second here, it's not quite as big as it should be. If it was as big as it should be, it'd probably be worth a lot more yes. <laughs> a lot more money. So as we kind of mentioned, it was originally intended to the top amateur hockey team in Canada, but it was decided by the acceptance of a challenge for another team. And there were some regulations that they kind of set in place how these challenges work. Yeah, so the first one is the winners shall return the cup in good order when required by the trustee so that it may be handed over to any other team which may win it. Number two was each winning team at its own expense may have the club name and year engraved on the silver ring fitted on the cup. Right, and three, this is supposed to stay a challenge cup, and the team, one team, whoever won it, wouldn't, it wouldn't become their property, even if they won it over and over again. Number four, the trustees would maintain absolute authority in all situations and disputes over the cup. And finally, number five, if a trustee resigned, then they would figure out how to replace that person. Yes. So the first cup was awarded in 1893 to the Montreal Hockey Club, the champions of the Amateur Hockey Association of Canada, since they defeated all comers during the late season, including the champions of the Ontario Association. Yeah, and the Ottawa's were actually pretty mad about this because there had been no challenge game scheduled and because they basically weren't told how the Cup was going to be awarded before the start of the season. So they kind of felt like, you didn't tell us what's going on, so we should have a chance to win it. Yeah, and because of this, as a result, the, tr- the trustees of the Cup issued more specific rules on how the trophy should be defended and awarded. Right, so first, the Cup is automatically awarded to the team that wins the title of the previous Cup's cha- uh, Champions League. Number two, challenge of the cup must be from the senior hockey associations and have won their league championship. And number three, the challenge games where the cup could change leagues are to be decided either in one game affair, a two game total affair, or a best of three series to the benefit of both teams involved. All matches are to take place on the home ice of the champions, although specific dates and times have to be approved by the trustees. And number four, Ticket receipts from the challenge games are to be split equally between both teams. Right, and also you just couldn't challenge the, for the Cup twice in one season. So you just couldn't just keep challenging back and forth based on uh, if you didn't win, you couldn't challenge them the next day. Yeah. Winners from 1893 to 1914 were determined by challenge games and league play. During the Challenge Cup period, none of the leagues that played for the trophy had a formal playoff system to decide their respective champions. Right, so this is kind of when we start seeing there being a little bit more of a, a league set up and actually awarding the champions of a league as opposed to just, I challenge you, I get the, the cup if I, if I beat you. So at this point, whichever team finished in, the first pl- it finished in first place after the regular season won the league title. And in 1894, four out of the five teams actually tied with records 5-3-0. and zero. And there, of course, was no tie-breaking system. So it was pretty quick to be like, oh, man, we need to figure out how we mm-hmm. award this cup. It's about as convoluted as the current NHL playoff system is, it seems like, sometimes. <laughs> well, so. yeah, right. But at least well, they have a lot of details as far as the tiebreakers, which I'm sure 
I don't want to say this was an influence, but this is definitely a, you know, learning from your mistakes, I suppose. For sure. So after extensive negotiations and Quebec's withdrawal from the championship competition, it was decided that a three-team tournament would take place in Montreal, with the Ottawa team receiving a bye to the final because they were the only road team. Right, and on March 17, 1984, the first ever Stanley Cup playoff game, the Montreal Hockey Club, which was also called Montreal HC, defeated the Montreal Victorias 3-2. to two. And professional teams first became eligible to challenge for the Stanley Cup in 1906. We should go back real quick. That just I, I kind of missed miss this. Um, the, the actual first Stanley Cup final game was when Montreal HC beat the Ottawa Hockey Club three to one. So they were so Montreal HC was the first Stanley Cup final game winners. Fitting as they've won the most amount of cups. The right. city of Montreal. So. Right. So. So now, like you just said, professional teams are eligible. And basically nine months after winning the Cup in March 1906, the Montreal Wanderers pushed through a resolution to allow professional hockey players to play alongside alongside amateurs. And because the ECAHA, which is, again, the Eastern Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, was the top hockey league in Canada at the time, the Cup trustees agreed to open the challenges to professional teams. So pros can play now. Yeah, just kind of a fun fact here. The smallest municipality to produce a Stanley Cup champion team is Kenora, Ontario. The town had a population of about 4,000 when the Kenora Thistles captured the Cup in January 1907. Aided by future Hall of Famers Art Ross and Bad Joe Hall, the Thistles defeated the Montreal Wanderers in a two-game total goals challenge series. Yeah, and pretty quick after that, in 1908, the Allen Cup was introduced, and that was the trophy for Canada's amateurs because, like we said, the Stanley Cup basically became the symbol of professional hockey supremacy. And in the same year, the first all-professional team, the Toronto Trolley Leaguers, it's kind of a fun These names are awesome. These I know, right? Names. They, beca- they came from the newly created Ontario Professional Hockey League, OPHL, and they competed for the Cup. Yeah, so one year later, the Montreal HC and the Montreal Victorias, the two remaining amateur teams, left the ECAHA, and the ECAHA dropped amateur from their name to become a professional league. And then in 1910, the National Hockey Association, the NHA, was formed, and it was basically for the best in Canada, and it kept the cup for the next four years. Yeah, and then prior to 1912, challenges could take place at any time or place given the appropriate rink conditions, and it was common for teams to defend the Cup numerous times during the year. Right, but after 1912, Cup trustees said that it would be defended only at the end of the champion team's regular season. So we're starting to see a little bit of a formation of the system we have now in Mm -hmm. place. Not quite yet, but similar. And then in 1915, professional ice hockey organizations, the NHA, National Hockey Association, and the Pacific Coast Hockey Association reached a gentleman's agreement in which their respective champions would face each other annually for the Stanley Cup. This is kind of like the East and the Western Conference Mm -hmm. for the most part. And the PCHA's Vancouver Millionaires won the 1915 series three games to none in a best-of-five series. And the format of the Stanley Cup final changed in 1922 – with the creation of the Western Canada Hockey League, which is the WCHL. Three leagues competed for the Cup. Two league champions faced each other for the right to challenge the third champion in the final series. This lasted three seasons as a PCHA and a WCHL later merged to form the Western Hockey League in 1925. 
And the Victoria Cougars became the last team outside the NHL to win the Stanley Cup, and that was in the 1924-1925 season. So here comes the NHL. Yeah, the NHL is coming because after the WHL folded in 1926, it was replaced by the Prairie Hockey League, which then led up to right. the next one. Exactly. The NHL, who had just come out entered the U.S. only two years before, basically bought up the contracts for most of the WHL players and really just stock their rosters with their three new U.S. teams. And then we get the Blackhawks, the Red Wings, and the New York Rangers joining the NHL, going along with the Bruins, the Canadians, and the Toronto Maple Leafs. So there's the, the our original ri- six. There's our first six teams, right. And the hated Blackhawks. <laughs> right. With the NHL now firmly established in the largest markets of the northeastern United States, and with the western teams having been stripped of their best players, the PHL was deemed to be a minor league unworthy of challenging the NHL for hockey supremacy. Right, so we're in 1926, and here we go. The Stanley Cup is established as the de facto championship trophy. And then, actually, it wasn't until 1947 when it was the de jure NHL championship prize. I had to look this up. So de facto means a state of affairs that is true, in fact, but it's not officially sanctioned. Whereas de jour means a state of affairs that is in accordance with the law. So, so in 1947, they essentially said, okay, Stanley Cup will be by law awarded to the winner of the NHL. Yeah, and so from 1947 to the 1970s, the NHL just kind of had that supremacy. In the 1970s, the World Hockey Association sought to challenge for the Cup. By this time, all Cup trustees were long NHL loyalists. And under the direction of the NHL president, Clarence Campbell, the WHA's challenge for the Cup was blocked. We've heard a lot of people that have trophies named after them so far in this. Yes. Right? There's another one, Campbell. Art Ross, the Campbell Trophy. Right. So we should say that basically the NHL stopped calling its champions the world champions because the European Ice Hockey League was a little mad about that because they weren't really included in this. This is basically the North American trophy. So they kind of... They didn't necessarily declare it, but they kind of just stopped calling themselves the world champions. Well, yeah, because if you look at some of those hockey players during the Cold War, especially the Russians were pretty darn good. So That is very true. Yes. The Cup then was awarded every year until 2005 when a labor dispute between the NHL's owners and the NHL Players Association led to a lockout that canceled the 2004 season. As a result, no Cup champion was crowned for the first time since the flu pandemic in 1919. And I, I mean, I'm sure you remember that. That was a very frustrating year when they didn't play hockey for that year. In 1919? No. <laughs> Good call. 2004-2005. That, yeah, that was, that, was, that was a rough year. Yeah, it's also led to fans wondering if the NHL had exclusive control over the Cup. Right, and so here we get Adrienne Clarkson, who is the Governor General of Canada. She you know, basically proposed, like, hey, let's present that trophy to the top women's hockey league in lieu of the NHL season. But unfortunately, it didn't really get a lot of traction. It was kind of unpopular. And so they created the Clarkson Cup to, to do that, to award the top women's hockey team. And then, meanwhile, a group in Ontario, also known as the Wednesday Nighters, filed an application with the Ontario Superior Court, claiming that the Cup trustees had overstepped their bounds and in signing the 1947 agreement with the NHL, and therefore must award the trophy regardless of the lockout. On February 7, 2006, a settlement was reached in which the trophy could be awarded to non-NHL teams should the league not operate for a season. So finally, February 7, 2006, we have the rules for the Stanley Cup. Yes. Who it can be awarded to. 
That was a long one. That was Over a hundred years later. That was a lot of information, I think. Yeah. Hopefully you guys got all that. Yeah. There's going to be a quiz at the end. Um, yeah. So anyway, there's a little bit of a history about the Stanley Cup and kind of how it came about and who created it and whatnot. We're going to get into a little bit about the engraving process, which is, you know, I think pretty, I don't know, it really just goes along with this trophy. Like, it's kind of one of the major elements of it, right? For sure. So, just like the Grey Cup, which is a word to the winner of the Canadian Football League, the Stanley Cup is engraved with the names of the winning players, coaches, management, and club staff. And initially, there was only one base ring, which was attached to the bottom of the original bowl by the Montreal Hockey Club. Clubs engraved their team names, usually in the form team name, year one, on that one ring until it was full in 1902. With no more room to engrave their names and I'm willing to pay for a second band, teams left their mark on the bowl itself. In 1907, Montreal Wanderers became the first club to record their name on the bowl's interior surface and the first champion to record the names of 20 members of their team. Yeah, so that's kind of cool to think that they had their names engraved on the inside part. That's usually not what we see. I, I didn't. This is the first. I never. I did not know that. I did not know that either. So in 1908, though, the team, the Wanderers, even though they turned aside four challengers, did not record their names on the cup. So I, I don't know. They didn't want recognition or something. And then the Ottawa Senators added a second band onto the cup the very next year. And despite the new room, the 1910 Wanderers and the 1911 Senators did not put their names on the cup. And then we kind of flash forward a couple of years later, 1915, the Vancouver Millionaires become the second team to engrave players' names, this time inside the bowl, along its sides. Yeah, and the 1918 Millionaires eventually filled the band added by the 1909 Senators. Yes, there's a lot of weird historic engraving things going on here. In 1915, the Senators. In 1916, the Portland Rosebuds. And 1918, the Vancouver Millionaires all engraved their names on the trophy even though they didn't officially win it under the new PCHA and NHA system. So I don't know how they got a hold of the cup, but they just somehow engraved their names on yeah. it. Yeah, and, and, well, which is kind of evened out because in 1918, 1920, 1923, the winners didn't actually put their winning team name on it. So we had some people that didn't officially win it put their names on it, and some people that did win it didn't put their names on it. So, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and then so no further engraving actually occurred until 1924 when the Canadians added a new band to the cup. Since then, engraving the team and its players has been an annual unbroken tradition. Right, and so there's a lot of things that, not a lot, but there are a few things that uh, you need to qualify for automatic engraving. So the, a player must have played or have dressed as the backup goaltender for at least half of the championship team's regular season, or... They must have played or have dressed as the backup goalie for at least one game of the finals for the championship team and must be on the roster when the team wins the cup. Right, so if someone get, gets called up and they get thrown on the team last minute, even though they weren't there for half the season, I mean, yeah, they, they get engraved, which makes sense. I mean, it would be funny to have someone play in a game during the Stanley Cup finals and not be engraved. Cause yeah, they, especially like if you come in and score a goal or something, and like the game-winning goal, but your name's not on the cup. Well, right, or like the tread deadline is technically after half the mm -hmm. season's over with, right? So I'm sure that's a reason why that's in there. Since 1994, teams have been permitted to petition the NHL commissioner to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis for what we call extenuating circumstances. So, for example... The Detroit Red Wings uh, received a special permission from the NHL to inscribe the name of Vladimir Konstantinov, whose career actually ended after a car accident on June 13, 1997. 
on the Stanley Cup after Detroit defended their title in 1998. So he was able to – he actually got put on there the yeah. next year, even though he didn't play. I remember that. I We're, we're going to talk about some big moments, and there's a we'll, – we'll get to that later. I hated those teams. Let me just get that out now. Okay. Yeah, but I do I remember being like – I, that was a I cool don't know that, that got me that was, that's yeah. I didn't realize his name was on the cup I just thought mm-hmm. there was some other recognition yeah. so more on that later so with the Montreal Canadiens having won by far the most cup championships of any team the list of players who have been engraved on the cup the most often is dominated by Montreal players Henry Richard of the Canadiens with his name engraved 11 times played on more Stanley Cup teams than any other player it's a lot uh, Jean Balaga and Jan Cornier of the Canadians had 10 championships and Claude Provost of the Canadians with nine. And there are three players tied with eight red Kelly who actually played four with the red wings and four with the Leafs. He's the most of any person that was not a member of the Canadians. We also had Jacques Lemaire and Maurice Richard who also played in eight games and Bolivar's name, Bolivar's name. And I'm saying that I'm butchering that. Sorry. His name appears in the cut more than any other individual, 10 times as a player and seven times as management for 17 times. That's crazy, That's right? Lot. Yeah. And then the fun fact, 15 women have had their names in the Stanley Cup. The first woman was named Marguerite Norris, who won the cup as the president of the Red Wings in 1954 and 55. The only Canadian woman to have her name on the cup is Sonia Scarfield, who was born in Saskatchewan who won the Cup as a co-owner of the Calgary Flames in 1989. Here's another cool engraving thing. In 2001, Charlotte Graham, the Colorado Avalanche's Senior Director of Hockey Administration, had her name engraved on the trophy, and her son, John, later had his name engraved as a member of the Tampa Bay Lightning in 2004. Cool. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Let's look at some random facts. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. There are technically three versions of the Stanley Cup, the original 1892 Bowl or the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup, the 1963 Authenticated Presentation Cup, and the 1993 Permanent Cup at the Hall of Fame. So the original 1892 Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup was purchased and donated by Lord Stanley. It was actually physically awarded to the champions until 1970. It's now currently in the vault room at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto, Ontario. In the authenticated version, or the Presentation Cup, was created in 1963 by Montreal silversmith Carl Peterson. NHL President Clarence Campbell felt that the original bowl was becoming too thin and fragile and thus requested a duplicate trophy as a replacement. The Presentation Cup is authenticated by the seal of Hockey Hall of Fame on the bottom, which can be seen when winning players lift the cup over their heads, and it is the one currently awarded to the champions of the playoffs and used for promotions. This version was made in secret, and its production was only revealed three years later. Hmm. And then the third, the third cup, which is called the Replicated Permanent Cup, replicated permanent cup was created in 1993 by montreal silversmith louis saint jacques to be used as a stand-in at the hockey hall of fame whenever the presentation cup is not available uh, for display so there's a few differences between the authenticated version and the the hockey hall of fame version the the best way to identify one version from another is to check the engraving for the 1984 stanley cup winning edmonton oilers the authenticated version has X's engraved over Basil Pocklington's name. Pocklington's name? Pocklington. Not Pocklington. Pocklington. Yeah. Pocklington's Basil. name. Yeah, Basil. 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 Where his name is completely missing from the Hall of Fame version. So that's how you can mm-hmm. figure out. I'm sure you're, you know, get out your... Uh, Hopefully you're close enough to the cup sometime to see that. Yeah, get out your magnifying glass. 
And the NHL has maintained control over the trophy itself and its associated trademarks. The NHL does not actually own the trophy, but uses it by agreement with the two Canadian trustees of the cup. Right. So it has those registered trademarks and the likeness of the Stanley Cup, but there is there actually has been disputed as to whether the league has the right to own trademarks associated with the trophy that it technically does not own. Let's look at the size now. Like, So the original size of the cup was 7 inches or 180 millimeters, and now it's around 36 inches, inches, inches and 35 pounds. Right, and the original bowl was made of silver and is 18.5 centimeters, which for you Americans is 7.28 inches high. And 29 centimeters, or 11.42 inches wide. The current Stanley Cup is topped with a copy of the original bowl, and it's made of a silver and nickel alloy. And it's kind of, I don't know, I think things pretty good, or seems pretty big. The height is a little bit over 35 inches, which is close to 90 centimeters, and weighs 15.5 kilograms, which again... For us Americans, it's 35 pounds, roughly, 34.5 pounds. Yeah, and, you know, they they lift that over their head pretty easily, so it can't be that heavy. But I would think after a while, just skating around with 35 pounds above your head gets tiresome. But they – well, I think they do it easily, but at the same time, every almost every one of them comments, the players comment on how hev- how much heavier they expect it – or they expect it to be not that heavy. Yeah. A new Stanley Cup is not made each year. Unlike the trophies awarded by the other major professional sports leagues of America, for example, the Lombardi Trophy, it's, a, it's for the yeah, Super Bowl, every year it's a new one. Right. So they do not remake the cup every year. Yeah, in, in 1947, the cup size was actually reduced, but not all the large rings were the same size. So, yeah, it's a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. And in 1958, the modern one-piece cup was designed with a five-band barrel, which can, could contain 13 winning teams per band. And once that's filled up, they remove the bottom band and they put it in the Hockey Hall of Fame so that the Stanley Cup isn't gigantic. Right? Yeah. And they add a new blank band to the bottom. It would keep growing and growing and growing. Yeah. And then since 1926, kind of like we said already, no non-NHL team has played for the Cup. Right. So there are some regulations that were set by Lord Stanley. And again, back to the trustees. It calls for two trustees to basically govern the cup and the, and the conditions for how it's awarded until 1947 when they kind of changed control to the NHL. And while the original regulations allow for a trustee to resign to date, all cup trustees have served until their deaths, which is kind of interesting. If you are a trustee, you serve until you die, which is crazy. So, go ahead. The main responsibility of the trustees was to maintain the rules, govern the competitions, and ensure the Stanley Cup was awarded and returned in proper conditions. When one trustee chooses to resign or is in need of replacement, the remaining trustee nominates a sub. The trustees have absolute power over all matters regarding the Stanley Cup. Yeah, and there have been nine men who have served as trustees of the Stanley Cup, and the current ones are Brian O'Neill, who's been there since 1987, and Ian Scotty Morrison, who's been there since 2002. Yeah, and then I think, like, the coolest job ever of all time is the keeper of the cup because it's always accompanied by at least one rep of the Hall of Fame. The current keeper, Philip Pritchard, has held the position since 1991 and even maintains a Twitter account to update followers on where the cup goes from day to day. Yeah, and there are actually a lot of misspellings on the cup, which, I mean, nowadays I'd be surprised if there were, but back in the day, it's not that shocking. So in in 1980-81, the New York Islanders is misspelled. 
It's I-L-L-A-N-D-E-R-S, which is not correct. In the Boston Bruins in 71-72, basically they put Qs where there should be Os in Boston, <laughs> which most of them are left there because it's kind of expensive to fix the mistakes. And the NHL will know will no more allow will allow no more than fifty two names from each year's winning team to be engraved. Yeah, so there's a lot of engraving. You know, we're just doing a deep dive. Yeah, we're just like down a Reddit rat, rabbit hole right now. I know, now right? Of... Well, let's talk a little bit more about just kind of the, the cup in general, and then we'll get into some some more uh, local local stuff. Yeah, I think um, we're excited about the local stuff. Yeah, so. One of the oldest traditions, which was started in 1896 by the Winnipeg Victorias, is that the winning team is supposed to drink champagne from the top bowl after their victory. And the cup is also traditionally presented on the ice to the captain of the winning team after the series winning game. Each member of the Victorious Club carries a trophy around the rink. Yeah, this, all, this actually wasn't always the case, though. So prior to 1930s, the cup was not awarded immediately after the victory. Uh, the first time the cup was actually awarded on the ice we don't think came until 1932 with the Toronto Maple Leafs, but the practice did not become a tradition until the 1950s. So before that, it was just kind of like, you get the trophy, keep it wherever you want. And Ted Lindsay of the 1950 cup champion, Detroit Red Wings became the first captain upon receiving the cup to hoist it overhead and skate around. According to Lindsay, he did it to allow the fans have a better view of the cup. Since then, it has been a tradition for each member of the winning team, beginning with the captain to take a lap around the ice with the trophy hoisted above his head. Yeah, and there are some times that's been breached with the captain getting it. In 1993, when the Canadians won, uh, Guy Carboneau handed the cup to Dennis Savard, as Savard had been the player that many fans had, argued, had urged the Canadians to draft back in 1980. So we've been around for a while. Yeah, and then probably the most famous one was the year the Avalanche beat the Blues in the conference finals, but okay. Um, Joe Sackick and Ray Bork won the cup in 2001. Sackick was a captain of the team. But when they won Game 7, Sackick just handed it to Bork because Bork was in his 22nd year of the NHL career, and he'd never won the Cup until then. So he didn't even hoist it up. He just skated over to Ray Bork immediately, and then Sackick hoisted it after that. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, and I I, I was sad like, we lost that series, but at the same time, like that's pretty classy of yeah. the old Avalanche, especially Joe Sackick, who I do like Joe Sackick a lot. So uh, something about the, the team, if you win, you're allotted 100 days during the offseason to pass around the cup. So you go to the parade, you give it to your sponsors, all your players, they kind of do something with it. But again, it's always accompanied, accompanied by at least one representative from the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah, and although many players have unofficially spent a day in personal possession of the cup, in 1994, the New York Rangers started a tradition wherein each member of the cup winning team is allowed to retain the cup for a day. Victors of the cup have used it to baptize their children. Three players, the New York Islanders' Clark Gillies, the Anaheim Ducks' Sean O'Donnell, and the Pittsburgh Penguins' Nick Bonino, even allowed their dogs to eat out of the cup. I totally would do that. I would be like, here, dogs, here's well, that's your dinner. T- and that's what we see on camera. Like, who knows what they're doing? Yeah, who knows? Uh, there are actual uh, players that – well, here's a big thing, and people talk about it all the time, is that when you win your conference, people do not t- touch their respective conference trophy because it could be a jinx. Yeah. So when you in the Western Conference, the Campbell Bowl, and the Eastern Conference, Prince of Wales Trophy, they don't touch it. Yeah, so let's look at some quick records, statistics. Since 1914-15 season, the Cup had been won a combined 103 times by 20 current NHL teams and five defunct teams. Yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, the Canadians have won it a record 24 times and are actually the most recent Canadian team 
to do so, which was in 1993. Yeah, the Detroit Red Wings, Red Wings have won it 11 times. Depressing. The most of any United States-based NHL team. Most recently, though, it's been since 2008 that the Red Wings have won it. So it's been a while. Yeah, I mean, not that long. 10 years, 11 years. The Canadians won the Stanley Cup five consecutive times from 56 to 60. And it's never, obviously, it's the record. The Islanders came closest when they won the Stanley Cup four times from 80 to 83. I'm really a fan of this next one. The most losses, and this was just added to, the Boston Bruins have 14 losses in the Cup Finals. The fewest losses are the Colorado Avalanche. They've only been there once, and they won it once. The most consecutive losses were the Toronto Maple Leafs from 38 to 40 and the Blues from 68 to 70. The most consecutive appearances are the Canadians, which had 10 from 1951 to 1960. And they also have the most consecutive appearances without a loss from 1968 to 1986 with nine. Interesting. Yeah. So most consecutive appearances without a win, Toronto Maple Leafs, they had 1933 to 1940, Detroit Red Wings, six from 1956 to 1995, and then the Philadelphia Flyers, six from 1976 to 2010. Yes, yeah, so they just keep getting swept. The most seasons between wins were the Rangers with 54 between 1940 and 1994. Yeah, and then the most seasons between appearances, the poor Maple Leafs, 51 seasons since 1967. Uh, and that was the last year of the original six. So they have never won in the bigger league since the expansion yes yeah those poor fans up there are, are tortured they yeah. just won a, a raptors just won the NBA, they did though so good for them they got a, yeah. got a they got a championship trophy yeah there are some pretty big moments in the stanley cup finals first off is one that <laughs> when brett hall so brett hall in 1999 went to the dallas stars and they won their first cup he scored at 1451 a triple overtime in game six the stars won two to one won the series four to two but the big question is should that have been a goal? Because back then, if your foot was in the crease at all, it was no goal. I, I don't think it should have been from clearly his, his foot, foot was, was in the crease. His foot was in the crease. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's partying so hard now, because he didn't feel like he could party that hard then. Yeah. I don't know. He didn't truly thought, think he earned it, but they got the trophy. Yeah. So another moment, Marty McSorley's stick measurement cost the Kings. The LA Kings had a 1-0 lead in the series and a 2-1 lead in the game two in Montreal with time running out. Montreal coach Jacques Demure called for a measurement of Marty McSorley's stick late in the third period. It turned out Demure was right, and the stick had an illegal curve. McSorley was given a two-minute penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct. Demure's pulled goalie Patrick Waugh, and the Habs had a six-on-four advantage. Eric Desjardins scored on the ensuing power play to tie the game and send it to OT. Desjardins again scored in the opening minute of overtime, and Montreal won the game 3-2, to two, and then they won the series in five games. Another big one was in 94 when, well, the Rangers finally won the Stanley Cup. And that was pretty big because that had been a 54-year drought. And basically, in 91, Messier went from Edmonton to New York. And, you know, honestly, it was huge. He, they didn't make the playoffs from 92-93. They won the President's Trophy in 93-94. And they were kind of thinking they'd they're, they're, uh, they'd be jinxed again, but luckily for them, they won three to two, Madison Square Garden, Game Seven against Vancouver Canucks. And I was a big Pavel Bure fan at the time, big and I was not happy that the mm-hmm. Rangers won. But good for them, good for Messi. I always liked him a lot. Yep. So then the Red Wings, we we've talked about this briefly already. Was they passed the cup to Konstantinov? Tragedy struck the Detroit Red Wings just six days after they won the cup. 
And Konstantinov and a team employee left a private celebration of the cup in a limousine. The driver, who had a suspended license, lost control of the vehicle, and Konstantinov was severely injured. He was restricted to a wheelchair for a long time after the accident. Detroit repeated as the Stanley Cup champions in 1998, and after winning the cup, invited Konstantinov onto the ice in his wheelchair to handle the cup. I remember that. I remember watching that. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And just the fact that he's engraved on the on the Stanley Cup trophy is pretty amazing. So let's kind of jump into some players because we've got a few um, records that should be mentioned. Yeah, so the most years in the final, 12 from Maurice Richard, Red Kelly, Jean Bellevue, and Henry Richard. Richard. Richard, I know. Uh, most <laughs> games played in the final, 65, Red Kelly, Henry Richard. Most consecutive games in the final, 53, Bernie Jeffrian. There's also, I mean, here's Richard again, most career goals in a final with 34, most career points in a final, Jean Balavé with 62, Gretzky has the most assists in the final with, with 35, Gretzky just, the amount of points he has, you know, if he hadn't scored a single goal in the, in the regular season, he would still have the most points in the league. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. The most career shutouts in a final with eight is Clint, Clint Benedict. Yeah, and then most points in one series was Wayne Gretzky in 88, 13. Most goals in one series, 14, way back in 1917 by Bernie Morris. Most assists in one series, there's Wayne Gretzky again in 1988, 10 assists. Most shutouts, one series, three by Clint Benedict, Frank McCool, and Marty Brodeur. All right, well, let's get to kind of what we've been looking forward to talking yeah, about for a while. this is amazing. And that's the 2019 St. Louis Blues. So, I'm sure that many of you know, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you are a an NHL fan, Stanley Cup fan. So Blues have won 2018-2019, getting rid of a 52-year drought. They actually hadn't even made it to the finals since 1970, back when they were just one of the original six expansion teams, and the winning team from the expansion new expansion teams would play the winning team from the original six. And they just got whooped up on by the uh, by the old Bruins. 14 players on this year's Stanley Cup roster were actually drafted by the Blues organization. Kind of cool. Yeah. So, and again, like we said earlier, the Blues went 0-12 in the first three seasons of their existence in the finals. And then, yeah, didn't win a game until this year. So, yeah. we've been through a lot as Blues fans. Right. Just you know? getting that first win, I, I was. I mean, I thought that was pretty freaking cool. I may or may not have teared up. Oh, I, I teared up for yes, sure. Yes, I, did. I did. Not with the first win. I teared up. After Game Seven, I teared sure. up when they went to the Cup Finals. I was very did excited. You? I did. Yeah, I just assumed they were going to lose. That's just because I'm a, I'm a typical St. Louis mm-hmm. Blues fan, you know. And, and I, but I did I did say to my wife at one point, I'm going to actually enjoy this because I could, I just can never enjoy a game. Mm-hmm. I was always just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was too. Speaking of the other shoe to drop and kind of being tainted, you know, back in '99, 2000, they finished the league with the world's best record, but they lost in the first round, and that was just kind of what happened. People would get injured. Iserman would shoot this crazy double oh, overtime gosh. winner. I mean, I, I just can't even. Nick Kiprios, you know, just, running in the Grand Fuhrer. Just over and over again, these issues. So, yeah. yeah. So then for this season, the Blues ranked last out of 31 teams in January. Never before has a team gone from last to first like this, this late in the season. And the Blues were one of eight teams in the bottom of the league to have 251, 252-1 odds of winning the Cup in January. Yeah, which is crazy. So one thing about these playoffs, this playoff series, is that in each round, the Blues were tied after four games, so 2-2. And after the games that followed, the Blues went 8-2, and winning by a combined score of 30-16. to 
led by their stud rookie goaltender, Jordan Bennington, who was a third-round draft pick in 2011, and he'd already played more than 200 games in the minors. He set the record for the most victories, 16, which is the most amount of victories you can get yeah. by a rookie goalie in a single postseason. It's the most victories you can get, period. Yes. Unless they expand the playoffs. Which, which let's hope they don't. I don't think they will, because they already have half the teams in the league making the playoffs. Yes. It's actually been 32 years since the Stanley Cup final game seven had a lead change, and that's not going to change uh, because there was no lead change. Game seven in 1997 was the first time when Edmonton came back to beat the Flyers. Wow, that's crazy. So, Ryan O'Reilly, the Conn Smythe winner, is a third player and first in 53 years who scored a team's opening goal in four straight Stanley Cup games. So, talk about this team and their resiliency. They won three straight wins in Boston. Which is nuts. Three of the four, right? Mm-hmm. And we're six and zero on the road after a loss. That's just amazing. Yeah. And honestly, one of my favorite moments, play Gloria. You know, I won't belt it out for you guys. You don't want to hear that. We're a podcasters, not singer. But Gloria by Laura Branigan became kind of the team's anthem when Alex Steen, Joel Edmondson, Robert Portuzo, Jaden Schwartz, and Robbie Fabry were watching the Eagles Bears NFC Wild Card game in Philly. In January, when a DJ played Gloria during a commercial break. Yeah, and that kind of yeah. became the song they play after every single win. Yeah, I spoke earlier of being at Game 7. It was so amazing. When Maroon scored that goal, literally like five seconds later, Gloria starts blaring. I was still jumping up and down. I almost fell on the person in front of me. I was so excited. Yeah, they've but, been doing it yeah. since January, yeah. which is freaking nuts. I think they'll probably retire it. I think you retire it with this oh, season. Yeah. No, you don't, don't want to play it next they, year. They don't play it next year. Yeah, they, oh. I hope they don't. So... The second person to get the cup after Petro was Bo Meester, and the reason why is he's the third longest tenured player in the NHL without a Stanley Cup championship with 1,184 career games behind Patrick Marlowe and Joe Thornton. Much to the depression of NBC, Joe Thornton did not, in fact, win this year. Well, San Jose period, right? Yeah, but... And then Boston, right? They were very, very excited for Joe Thornton to make the finals and win. Yes, poor San Jose, poor Boston, and poor NBC. Yes, but the Blues won, so all is good. One of the coolest stories this year as well is Layla. She was a um, a Blues fan. She has, I'm going to butcher this, hemophagotic lymphocytes, which is severe systemic inflammatory syndrome that can be fatal. But she got permission to travel, and she was able to go to the, the TD Garden and hoist the Stanley Cup, and that was awesome. Yeah, I'm just trying to repeat that term in my head, and it's pretty hard to say. You know, I try. I'm sure I butchered it. Hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Mm -hmm. Cool story, though. (laughs) She got to ring the bell at the hospital, and they played Gloria when she got to ring the bell. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. There's a lot of ovations. We we give a shout-out to Chara. He actually was – there was an 18-second wait after Chara was announced – uh, In game five. In game five, after he – kind of his jaw was basically broken. We don't know what actually happened to him, but – we're assuming that his jaw was broken. Yeah, I mean, in. hockey players are freaking crazy. Yeah. Coming back the next game after a broken jaw. That's pretty cool. Let's give him some props. Yes. I give him props. He is like 43 years old. And yes. Gigantic. And finally, Charles Glenn, who's a longtime anthem singer for the Blues game, promised to leave every note on the ice before game six. It was his last game because he's got multiple sclerosis, and uh, he had done it for 19 years. So it was awesome to see him go out and sing the most amount of games that he could. You should read the story, too, about how he became the, the actual singer. Have you heard that before? I have not heard that story. So apparently he wasn't even on the list to, to audition almost 20 years ago, and he just kind of showed up, got in there, and then they asked him to sing the Canadian National Anthem, and he was one of the only guys who could actually do it. 
impressive. And then as a result, here he is. Yeah. He actually used to play at my parents' restaurant a long time ago. He'd sing Journey, and uh, he's got an amazing, amazing voice. So he will be missed, but what a, what a heck of a way to go out, right? Yeah, gosh, what a great season that was for yeah. the Blues to finally win the Cup after so long. Yep. I'm going to Boston next month, and I will be wearing my Stanley Cup blue shirt every single day. So we'll enjoy that. Hopefully you come back. Uh, if I don't make it back, you know why. I was going to say, you <laughs> might get injured a little bit, but hopefully you make it back with you know not too many of them. So, All right, well, that's it. I feel like we just ran a Stanley Cup marathon. I know. I feel like Petro holding that Stanley Cup during the entire parade. I think we did about as much work as they did. Did you see him? The entire parade. I was down there for that parade, and it was amazing. Again, 35 pounds. He carried it the entire way. Um, from the beginning of the parade route all the way down to the arch. Did you see Brett Hall at the parade? Brett Hall was doing some, was drinking a few uh, adult beverages yeah, from I think the crowd. He, speaking of Gloria, he had quite the version of Gloria down there. Yeah, so. he, had, he was having a great, they were all having a great time, and, and the players and, and just even the fans, it was just the nicest, most friendly, just everyone was just in such an amazing mood, exuberant. Yep. So, all right, well, thanks. A little bit of nerd outreach now. First off, we're going to do our thank yous. I mean, of course, we got to thank Clayton High School for giving us the space. And uh, Josh wants to probably thank... I always thank my wife for letting me come and have fun and do this. So thank you, honey. I know you're not listening, but I love you. I hope people don't think that I'm like an evil person for not thanking my wife. But she knows that I thank her. And, and she Does she listen? She does listen. So at least she listens. She doesn't need the shout out. She's good. Yeah. You know, but you're just a nicer person than me. I am pretty nice for yeah. the most part. So... If you have future show suggestions, send them into our email, nerdisanewcoolpodcast at gmail.com, or you can use the hashtag nerdisanewcoolpodcast. Yeah, so we've got a ton of different ways to contact us as well. Be sure to like or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at nerdisanewcoolpodcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at nerdisanewco2. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and now, just recently, we're also on the Stitcher app. Just look for Nerd is the New Cool or Nerd is the Nerd is the New Cool podcast and you'll find us. Awesome. So thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thanks so much and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>